Most of the other people we encounter tonight are not sincere. These folks are. And so Jesus gives them a, a, a sincere answer, but very complete. He quotes Isaiah 35. Basically, He references Isaiah 35. because He says, go and tell, this is chapter, verse 4, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Well, there's a little bit of foreshadowing, too, that blessed are those who are not offended by me. So he points him to Isaiah, which is a prophecy of the Messiah. So he's basically saying, yeah, I'm the Messiah. You got it. You see all that stuff I did in the last four chapters? That's, that's Messiah stuff. In chapter 11, verse 27, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Well, he's kind of escalating things here. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and... No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, that's a huge thing, right? So he's, he's got people starting to ask him questions, wonder who he is, and he's saying, look, I'm the, I'm your, I'm the person who's going to reveal the Father to you. You aren't going to find the Father without me. Right, and I should say, I, I skipped over in the earlier block where he's calling down judgment on those cities in which he did his miracles. Right, and, and, and so I'm jumping intentionally because we're going to focus in on one specific story. But, but so in the block before that, right, he talks about woe to this city, woe to this city. These are the towns where he did all his miracles. And he's saying woe to them because they're not responding. People are rejecting him. People are saying, well, that was interesting, but then they're walking away. People are saying, that's interesting, but I'm opposed. And so he is escalating what he is saying about them. He needs them to understand. Everyone needs to understand who he is. And then ultimately he's going to be calling them and us to a decision. Chapter 12, the opposition gets really ramped up, right? We start to have these Sabbath day issues. And so he makes pronouncements like, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He's greater than the temple. Okay, that's going to get people offended. But they have asked him a question that is intended to really put him on the spot. Right? They are rejecting him and his disciples, and he's saying, look, you got something bigger than the temple. Then he goes on in, in verse 8. He says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so now that's serious business. Then we see they start to conspire against him. All right, they're starting to have enough. Like we, the Pharisees have now moved. They're done. You know, they're conspiring against him how to destroy him. That's verse 14. So we see this escalation on both sides, right? Jesus becoming more clear about who he is as people become more hardened that they have no interest whatsoever in what he's really there about. Now, jumping way to the end of chapter 12, I'm skipping over the thing we're going to talk about most, but he makes two notes. One, that something greater than Jonah is here, right? So he compares himself favorably to Jonah. And then something greater than Solomon is here. So he's greater than Solomon. So all of these points are escalating, right? We see that rising tension. It's going to come to a break, a rupture between him and those who have no interest in what he has to say, no interest in the kingdom of God. That's what we're going to focus in on today. Uh, it's chapter 12, verses 22 to 37. Um, it's frequently known as the, the part about the blasphemy of the Spirit or the part about the unforgivable sin. All right? Some people get 
concerned about the unforgivable sin, so we're going to talk about the unforgivable sin. Um, what is it that is the unforgivable sin when everything else can be forgiven? Because this is a key thing, right? I, had, I would head this as the Pharisees commit the unforgivable sin. Because this is, there's a huge st- structural change in the book of Matthew at this point. After this, there's a huge change in the way Jesus talks to people after this. Uh, he goes from being this incredibly plain and direct person that we know from the Sermon on the Mount, the guy who's got thousands and thousands of people following him because what he says is so clear and so refreshing, to this guy in chapter 13 who starts talking in parables. And when his disciples are like, what's up with the parables? He's like, it's so the people who don't want to understand won't understand. So questions about that before we dive into this episode with the unforgivable sin. Okay, I'll go ahead and take a minute and read it. Uh, We're going to read all the way from 22 to 37. It is on the back of the song sheet, but the font's pretty small. So if if you want to grab a Bible, that's fine. And so we want to we want to make sure we get all of this right because there's a section break at least in the ESV there's a section break um, between verses 33 32 and 33 the section breaks are not inspired by the Holy Spirit and in this case they're interrupting the story so you tend to break the two chunks apart they go together this is those last four are kind of the that's the conclusion then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Right Now, the son of David, we've talked about that in previous weeks. That's a name for the Messiah. This isn't the first time that this name has been applied to Jesus. We saw it relatively recently in chapter 9 when he healed two blind men who were not asking, could he be the son of David? Those two guys knew he was the son of David. They called out to him, son of David, so their faith was sufficient and they were healed. When the Pharisees heard it, yeah, so they hear this good news, right? This guy who was blind and mute. They heard it. They said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons like by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Ouch. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, we've heard that before, John the Baptist called them that too, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. 
for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Like I said, that's the conclusion to him talking about the words of the Pharisees, so it's important to keep it all together as a package. We talked last week that when you read a Bible story, you want to make sure you isolate the whole story to make sure you get the point, get the teaching, get the conclusion. And this is an example of a case where that's important because the way the English translator, at least in my Bible, did it, they interrupted the story with a section header, which, at least for me, is a natural cue of, okay, we're on to another story. But in fact, this is the following teaching, the follow-on action to this story about where Jesus heals this demon-possessed man and he is immediately accused of using the power of Satan. All right, talk about no good deed goes unpunished. So it all goes together. Um, and so obviously we're, we're dealing with what the blasphemy of the Spirit is, what the unforgivable sin is. Some people wring their hands over this and get kind of concerned about it, like, have I ever committed the unforgivable sin? Right? Usually that happens because you, you read those verses about the unforgivable sin or the blasphemy of the Spirit, and you read them out of context. You just read those verses. You maybe you do a search on the Holy Spirit. You search on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You search on the unforgivable sin, whatever. You get that little bit out of context, right? And you miss the part that it's part of this bigger story involving this demonic possession, this exorcism, these accusations, and this judgment, which, when you realize that it's in this context, helps you understand very clearly what the unforgivable sin is and what the blasphemy of the Spirit is. Context is so important when we read the Bible. That's why you, know, you want to read it. You want to read it. You want to read it a lot. You want to read it often. Your skill grows as you read it, but you want to make sure you read the whole story and that you consider all the parts of the story, because it is so easy to either get spun up over some verses, take out of context, or be manipulated by some preacher or teacher who takes a few verses out of context. So just walking back through, right? Verse twenty-two. We're introduced to this. Demon-oppressed man, this blind, mute individual. Uh, so that's our sort of intro character, as we did the, as we talked about the narrative last last week. Jesus heals this man. This is like an unprecedented miracle. This is a big deal. Um, there's varying interpretations on how big a deal, right? There are some, there is at least a theory that says like, when you cast out demons, you had to know the demon's name, and so. To cast out a mute demon, which couldn't say its name, would be an extra special sign of the Messiah. I couldn't find a ton of support for that. I have read it, um, so I'm not going to preach that one. Um, But what's probably most directly applicable is, just as he had told the messengers of John the Baptist and pointed them back to Isaiah 35, right? If we go back to Isaiah 35 and look at the signs of the Messiah... Verses 5 and 6 say, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Right? So healing the mute, healing the blind, as this guy was, he has two of them, signs of the Messiah. Anyway, a great miracle. Now, clearly from context, he's not the first and only person to cast out demons in this time frame. There's clearly some amount of demon exorcism going on. Uh, amongst Jewish leaders. Uh, it seems like he's implying maybe some of the Pharisees or uh, have people among them who cast out demons. Uh, I think in the book of Acts, we encounter some people who cast out demons and have some funny stuff happen to them. Uh, the sons of Sceva, not Sceva, Sceva. 
funny, funny bit. Um, anyway, they get the, the demon gets the best of them. But regardless, it's an attention-getting miracle. And so all the people, right, verse 23 emphasizes, all the people were amazed and said, can this be the Son of God? So this isn't just one or two guys by the side of the road saying, could this be the Son of David? Um, this is all the people, a large group of people that are, that are starting to get stirred up. Hey, this guy might be the Messiah. Well, the, the Pharisees can't stand by and let this happen, right? Because we know from chapter 9, uh, verse 14, or rather chapter 12, verse 14, right, they're conspiring against him to destroy him. So they cannot let these people get all excited that he might be the Messiah. they got to stop this. And so they figure out a way. They say, well, the way he's doing it is through the power of the devil. Right, they have to use something. And they're doing this. This is an authoritative pronouncement. And, and we realize like Pharisees are kind of cartoonish to us. But they were not cartoonish to people back then. Right? They're cartoonish to us because they're always the villain in these stories. Back then, they were highly respected. They were the primary teachers. You know, the Pharisees were not priests. They didn't work in the temple. But in terms of out in the villages teaching and educating people, it was usually the Pharisees. It was usually the Pharisees who led the synagogues. So most people in Israel who knew much of anything about Scripture had learned it from Pharisees. And the Pharisees are saying, this is by the power of the devil. Well, this is obviously a problem, right? I mean, this is, we'll see later, this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is the unforgivable sin. So, he, how does Jesus respond to this, right? This is a total rejection. He works a great miracle, and he's attributed to being working for the devil. Well, I like first that he responds with logic. See, I like that. We don't always think of that. You know, there's something else we don't necessarily think of that he's logical, but he, he is very logical in this case. It's also humorous in some cases, right? His first response is basically, that's stupid. <laughs> right? It, it, and it's much more reasoned than that, but that's the essence of the message. Because he's like, look, if I'm doing this by the power of the, de of the devil and I'm, I'm casting out demons, then like Satan is warring against the devil. And, and we need to realize this isn't the first demon that Jesus has cast out. He's kind of been industrial strength casting out demons all the way through the book of Matthew. Right? They don't go into tons of detail about them, but there are a number of passages that say, and he cast out everybody who was demon, you know, all the demons, and he healed everybody who was sick. So there were lots of these. So this would be industrial grade. This would be a civil war in hell if he really was casting out all these demons by the power of Satan. So his answer is, you know, that's stupid. And then he says, you got people in your group who are casting out demons, so if I'm casting out demons by the power of the devil, how are they doing it? Are they doing it by the power of the devil? You know they're not going to say that. So it's another variation where you kind of wind up looking kind of stupid for that. And so he says, you know, so if you're right, this is stupid. But if you're wrong, this matters a ton, and you guys need to pay attention. Because he says, if you're wrong, is in verse 28. Right? But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. So this is the opposite. If you're wrong, and I'm not doing this by the power of Satan, I'm doing it by the power of the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Tremendously important. 
So if we accept that, yeah, they're probably not right because it would be stupid, then we're left with they're wrong, in which case this miracle, this thing he did right there, has this enormous impact because it's saying the kingdom of God is right here. Now, we've been talking all the way around through Matthew, right, that, that the message of Matthew is that the kingdom of God is here, that Jesus had come to inaugurate the kingdom of God, to launch the kingdom of God. You know, sort of the, the D-Day raid uh, or the, the invasion of Normandy to begin taking back the earth. Right? We need to remember that, as he repeatedly says um, in the Bible, two examples from John, he says, you know, Satan has control of the earth, or immediate responsibility of the earth. God has ultimate responsibility and authority over the earth. But as he says in John chapter 12, verse 31. Let's see. I should probably get to the right chapter. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? In this case, he's talking about Satan. And then in verse chapter 14, verse 30, he makes the same point even more clearly. I will no longer talk with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me. Right again, talking about Satan. So he has launched, this is, when the, this is the ultimate Matthew message, right? We listed the, at the very beginning the big stories of Matthew. The ultimate Matthew message, right, is that the end, the dawning of the new age has come. The dawning of the kingdom of God is here. The dawning of the end of the age in Christ is here. So, verse 29, he's got more logic for these Pharisees, right? So he says, okay, if I'm doing it by the Spirit of God, if the, if the kingdom of God is right here, right now, that also has implications. How can someone enter a strong man's house and blunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So, Satan's house is the earth, right? And he just said the kingdom of God is here, so he's the one who's come into the house. He's stronger than Satan. So here's another thing that he's bigger than. We talked about bigger than the temple, bigger than Jonah, bigger than Solomon, bigger than Satan, more powerful than Satan. He's come into the house. He's the guy who can bind hand of Satan. So his logic is, right, if you can bind the power of Satan's minions, then you've got to be more powerful than Satan. We should note that Jesus had already won round one against Satan during the temptation in chapter four. And so now Jesus basically says, I'm here and I am plundering his house. I am robbing the house of Satan. And what is he stealing from him? People. He's stealing people who are in the grasp of Satan and he's, he's saving them, pulling them out. Can you think of a firefighter, you know, taking people out of a burning building? Those are all, that's a good image. Plenty of other images. You picture the devil tied up, carrying people out, leading people out. That's the point. So more logic. And what does this build to? It builds to a call for decision. Decision time, verse 30. Right, this is the peak here. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Right, this is the ultimate response to rejection. Right, you got to choose. If you reject me, that's a choice. If you don't choose, make a choice. You've made a choice. 
We've had crowds following him around for an extended period of time. You don't really get a strong sense of chronology in Matthew. You don't really know how long it's been since the beginning of the book. But clearly, some extended period of time has been going on, months, could be years. People have been following him around, right? They're all excited, whatever, but they're not really committed. They just like the show. They like getting their problems fixed. And he says, look, you're now, it's decision time. Because we've now hit a point of tension, right, where you're not going to be able to just follow around because now there's this open conflict between he and the Pharisees. So continuing to follow Jesus is going to start being tough. It's going to start meaning something. Or you need to walk away. Right? And, and, and to walk away because it's inconvenient, because it's embarrassing or whatever, is not going to be good enough. You're either with him or you're not. It's like a light switch. It's on or it's off. And so we might not like to think about Jesus in this way, because this is a very direct and confrontational way, but he is this way. This is, this is Jesus. You've had your chance. You've seen your miracles. You know what I'm doing. You've heard my message. You've got to make a choice. The Pharisees have made their choice, but you've got to make your choice. This is something that's still true, right? This is true. We live in a culture that wants to like Jesus, but not follow Jesus. They wants to be, you know, fans, and maybe they want to do a Facebook like on Jesus, but they do not want to obey Jesus. So they'll say, oh, he's a very moral guy. He's a great teacher, right? But that's not who he is. If he's a great teacher and you respect him as a teacher, but you don't, you kind of skip this part, then you're not really respecting him as a teacher. You're demonstrating your ignorance of what he taught. You can't respect what he teaches and say it's great teaching and then selectively edit out the parts you don't like, which is what a lot of people try to do in our culture today. His point is you either follow him as Lord and Savior, Son of God, or you don't. You're either part of the harvest or you're part of the scattering. And I would note that um, in the Old Testament, whenever they talk about the harvester, it's always God. So it's a little bit of a God reference here when he describes himself in this sort of harvesty way. So questions before we get into the, the mean stuff, where mean Jesus talks. All right, so starting in verse 31. Right, He says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. This is good news. Good news. Right? We need that. This is what Jesus offers. Forgiveness for every sin and blasphemy. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So again, remember the context here. What has happened? He has just done something. He's been very clear. Right? You, his language is always very precise. He's very clear. He did this work by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God was just called the Spirit of Satan, Spirit of Beelzebul. So they've said that the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, is the work of Satan. And what he says is, if you are that confused, you are that turned upside down, that you can't tell the difference between the work of God and the work of the devil, there's really no hope for you. You can't be forgiven. And I think the point of this is it's because... If you are that turned around, 
right? You're never going to believe that he's the Son of God. You're never going to ask for forgiveness, so you can't be forgiven. So it's not so much that they said something wrong, it's that their heart was in such a condition that they will never say what they need to say to get to the place it needs to be to get forgiveness. Because everything can be said and, and forgiven, but not this thing that represents such a deep and hardened and darkened heart that there is just no way you're getting out of it. Right? You are, the Pharisees are choosing to be this way. Right? They have seen him do miracle after miracle after miracle. Right? At first they thought it was cool, then they think it's not. He has made, given ample evidence that he's working by the power of God, and they continue to attribute him to Satan. Their hearts will never change. Therefore, there is no hope for them. So the blasphemy of the Spirit, that's attributing the works of God to Satan, and it represents that you are, your heart is just so hard and so turned that you're never going to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so because you're never going to trust, because you're never going to ask for forgiveness, you can't be saved. You've got to have the faith first. And so as you look at verse 32, you know, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Right? This is, this is why you can know people who rage against Jesus for years and years and years. You know, who rage against God for, for decades, who are hardened and, and, and rough. And then they come to repentance and faith at some point in their life, and they are forgiven. It's because of teaching like this, because they didn't reach such a point that they are so hardened that they just outright attribute the work of God to the work of Satan. So I think the comfort here, right, is that a believer can't commit this sin, right? It's not possible for a believer to be this twisted. Uh, even somebody who isn't necessarily a believer but is asking this question is probably on good ground because if you can ask this question, right, it probably means you're not so hardened and so turned against uh, God that you have, you, know, you have enough awareness of him that you're asking the question. So it's not one that we need to worry about in and of itself. It's a teaching on the nature of salvation and then teaching of damnation if you never get around to asking for forgiveness, if you're so, so hardened against God. So that is the unforgivable sin, and the Pharisees just committed it. As I said, this is the turning point in the book of Matthew with regard to how he relates to the Pharisees. If you look at them before and verses after, it's completely different. right? In a minute, I'll reread verses 33 to 37, and he is just ripping them to shreds. Right? Because what he is saying in there about people's words and the evil that comes out of their heart and being bad trees, he's talking about them. He's talking to them, because in the end he says, by your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned. And of course it's the words of the Pharisees that have condemned them, that they have committed this unforgivable sin. And like I said, from here on out in the book of Matthew, we'll notice, you'll notice extremely suddenly if you read chapter 13 this week, which I recommend, we'll talk some parables about the kingdom next week. But if you read chapter 13, it's almost all parables. Most of his clear teaching from that point on is reserved for the disciples, those who have made the commitment, those who said, yes, we're with you. And for everyone else, for the, for the crowds milling around looking for the Jesus show, or for the Pharisees, he tends to talk in these parables. And, and again, we always think of parables, we're always taught, well, that's so, that's so they're memorable. Well, they are, it is helpful, right? But we'll talk about it next week. Jesus is pretty upfront. 
He's telling them parables so that they won't understand. So if you want to understand, you'll be able to understand. And if you don't want to understand, you'll be baffled. Now, it's not universally true. Towards the end of Matthew, he tells them the parable, and the, the Pharisees totally get it when he tells them they're going to be cast out of the vineyard and burned and killed and all kinds of stuff. They got that one. But most of them they do not get from this point on. All right, so this is, this is the end of the relationship. So just a, a reminder of what he had to say to them in the midst of their, their words. He says, either the tr- make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, right, again, he's picking up a John the Baptist phrase too. How can you speak good when you are evil? Okay, that's not a rhetorical question in the part where he's claiming they're evil. He pretty means that. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That is important. Our words matter. Right? I'm not saying we're going to be like the Pharisees, but casual words that are ugly and nasty, they do seem to reflect a heart condition. So, good news is we have a great cardiologist. So the point, again, of the story... Right? I think talking to what we did with the narrative analysis, right? The the point is there in verse 30, and then we get a lot of follow on teaching in this case. That's that point of, you know, either you're with me or you're against me. The point is it's decision time. These massive crowds have got to make a choice. Everyone who reads or hears the gospel of Jesus Christ has to make a choice. It's not enough to like him, doesn't matter how many likes he gets. Right? You've got to make the choice. He's given them proof after proof. This is what we need to realize. Right? This, if you look at the way Matthew is built, it's built up. Miracle after miracle. Truth after truth. Old Testament fulfillment after Old Testament fulfillment. Matthew is trying to make it really clear that he has built an ironclad case for who Jesus is. That there is no excuse, as you read the Gospel, to not recognize Jesus for who he is, again, as it builds up and up and up the case. Right? Each of the Gospels builds the similar case in a different, different way, different style, but they're always building the same case. The Gospels all have a purpose. It's to get you to believe in Jesus Christ, if you're a reader. And the point is, for everybody who reads, there is a decision that has to be made. And so if we have friends who know it, but they're kind of, eh, I'll think about it. I'll get to it. Whatever. Lack of a decision is a decision. That's really the takeaway from verse 30. Right? You're either for him or you're not. And that's where he leaves it. So this is Jesus in the face of rejection. Right? It's uh, His response is not violent. Right? He's not going to get revenge on people in that way. But it's very direct. You reject me, you are rejecting your only path of salvation. This has eternal consequences. Questions about that story? Like I said, next week, I think we'll look at uh, chapter 13, one or two of the kingdom parables. Uh, start to talk about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Of course, we've been seeing what the kingdom is like here on earth. Um, and so these are also a bit more about how the kingdom is going to work here on earth for the most part.
uh, because Matthew is very focused on the kingdom that is here in Lakeridge. He maybe not he wasn't writing about Lakeridge, but still true. The kingdom here in Lakeridge. Plenty of kingdom work to do. Going to be a lot to do for the next however long until he comes. We'll go ahead and pray. We're done a little bit early. I guess I should have told another story or something. You know, should have. Normally, when I do two stories, it, yeah, we we run out of time. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity here. Uh, we recognize that it is a stark decision to which. Your son calls us and calls all who hear of him, all who read this word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be reassured in our own salvation, reassured in our own forgiveness of sins, that we are not in the category of the Pharisees committing the unforgivable sin. Lord, I pray you would help us to, out of this teaching, have an urgency for those we know who are just watching Jesus, standing around on the edge, thinking positive thoughts about him or neutral thoughts. Give us an urgency, for we recognize that to not choose Jesus is to reject him until such a day that the decision is changed to choice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.